You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening and welcome to Jewish Matters podcast. And tonight we are at unveiling Genesis number 10, uh, Parshat Miketz, the story of Joseph and his brothers, conflict and subterfuge. And this is the second in the three-part drama of Joseph and his brothers. Yes, the same one is Joseph and his magic Technicolor dream coat, uh, except the real version, the Torah's version. And we are, we picked up, Joseph was sold into slavery. He becomes a steward of Potiphar's wife, is accused of trying to force himself on his wife and thrown into prison. And it says that he spends two more years in prison after he interpreted the dreams of Paris Butler, but that didn't help him escape. So he's two more years in prison. And the rabbis say that those two years in prison uh, are partially due to the fact that Joseph counted on the butler to get him out and did not count primarily on the Almighty. And so now things are going to take a turn, again, over dreams. This time, Paro has a dream and cannot interpret it. And the butler says, I know someone who interprets dreams. And so they pull Joseph out of prison. It says they clean him up and they bring him before Paro. And Paro tells him of his dream, the seven uh, fat cows and the seven lean cows that eat the fat ones and the seven uh, sheaves of wheat eaten by the seven lean ones. And Pharaoh says, uh, tell me what it means. Joseph again reiterates, it is God who gives the interpretation, not myself, that his insight comes from the Almighty. But then he proceeds to tell Pharaoh that the seven fat are the seven years of plenty, which are going to come. And the seven lean cows are the seven years of famine, which will follow. And then, very interestingly, um, Joseph gives his own take on it, his advice, which is that uh, the implication of the dream is that during the seven years of plenty, you store up, you stock up for the seven years of famine, and Pharaoh should find a person to be able to do this for him. Now, a self-promoter would have come up and said, you know, I'm your man. I gave you the interpretation. I'm the only one who can do your job for you. But Joseph was humble. It wasn't Joseph's way. And Joseph wasn't looking for a power grab. Joseph understood that the Almighty would have a hand in whatever the unfolding of his fate would be. And so he merely stated that wisdom to Paro. And Paro was responsive to that. He says, can there be found a man like this who has the spirit of God on him? After God has revealed to you all of this, there is no one as wise as you. And then he says, you will be the head over my house, of my court, and all the people will be directed by you, Joseph, and only my throne will be greater. In other words, you are going to be second in command. Now, if you look at this story, we can ask the question, how could it be that Paro would take a slave, a prisoner, and put him to run the entire country? And we have to assume that Pharaoh was smarter than uh, we give him credit for. And we have to assume that the Torah doesn't tell the entire narrative of what is going on. We know that. Torah is not a storybook or a history book. It's a book of instruction. 
And so we have to assume that Pharaoh did his homework. Pharaoh researched that Potiphar had put him over his house, that Potiphar recognized God's blessing for coming through Yosef. And so really he wasn't a slave in prison. He was someone with a track record already. And so Pharaoh gives him his ring, dresses him up in special clothes, interestingly enough, and parades him on his chariot through the city. Now, there's also another dimension to Paris thinking, which is when you need to run a project like this, if you bring in the usual people, they're going to have their cronies, everyone's going to get a cut. And corporations will do this. They'll bring in an outside person who's not beholden to the culture within to be able to shake things up. And so on the divine level, on the practical level, Power knew what he was doing. And the Torah tells us Joseph was 33 years old when he stood before Paro and went out and he traversed the whole land and he started to collect and store the grain. And Joseph, in a sense, comes into his own. Paro gives him Asnat bat Potifera to marry as a wife. And there's a tradition that she was the daughter of Dina, who was raped and was sent away from the family by Jacob, but uh, had an amulet saying who she was. Also from the house of Potiphera, is that the same of Potiphar? It's not clear, but they have children. And the first one is Menashe. He's called, God, Joseph says, because God has made me forget all of my hardship of my father's house. And the second one, Ephraim, God has made me prosperous. So Joseph had made his new life. Joseph has found his own place and his own self. And to what point does he become Egyptian? To what point has he moved on? We'll discuss that in a little bit. Because um, the scene now turns back to Jacob and his sons. And the famine has hit. He says to him, why are you standing around? Go to Egypt and get food, which is the only place that had it. Why were they standing around? Could it be that in the back of their minds, subconsciously, they knew they wanted to avoid Egypt because Egypt was where Joseph was. But now they had to go down. So they go down to Egypt and the brothers are brought before Yosef. Now, isn't this also is pe peculiar. Uh, the viceroy of a country would be the one to the second in command to be interviewing foreign buyers. So the rabbis tell us that Joseph understood that sooner or later her, his brothers would show, would show up. And when they did, he wanted to be there. Now, this leads to another question and a primary central question to the entire story, which is, why did Joseph not contact his father, Jacob, and tell him that he was alive? Okay, let you think about that for a sec. He was a head steward in an aristocrat's home, could have sent messenger. By now, he's been the second in command of the most powerful empire in the world, for seven years of famine, uh, seven years of plenty, and at least one or two years of famine. Yet he didn't let his father know what was going on. And when the brothers come, it says he accuses them of being spies because he remembered his dreams. Now, what does that mean? So in part two, which we will do in the second part of the 
in-depth uh, Genesis unveiled for this Parsha, we will talk about this question of why Joseph didn't let his father know that he was alive. But as we go through the story now, some of it will start to unfold. It's very clear that he had the dreams in his mind, very clear he was waiting for his brothers, very clear that he had a plan. So they start to tell him about themselves. We have a brother at home. We're brothers. He accuses them of being spies. They say, no, we're not spies. We're just normal people, normal brothers. And he picks up on the brother at home. He said, well, if this is true, you're gonna, I'm going to put you in prison. One of you will go get your brother and bring him down here and prove to me that you're not spies. And so when this happens, they didn't know, of course, that he understood Hebrew. And they start to cry out and they say, uh, this is happening because of what we did to our brother, Joseph. They start berating themselves and start saying that this is the unfolding of, uh, of what we have brought upon ourselves. And so, um, and uh, Ruvain also reiterates that. Now, uh, Joseph throws them all in jail, but he lets them out and he retains only Shimon in jail and lets the other, bro other brothers go to bring back their other brother. And uh, as they're traveling back to Israel, one of them opens the bag and finds money in the bag. And here is where they start to break themselves and uh, realize that things are starting to spiral out of control. They see in this a divine hand and that in a sense, God is punishing them for what Joseph they did to their brother, Joseph. They say, because we didn't listen to his cries out to us. Now it's interesting because they do a partial tshuva, a partial admittance of wrong, but they don't say we should never have done what we did to our brother. They said we should have been more merciful. So let's keep track of this, okay? Because Joseph is going to lead the brothers through a process of redemption, so to speak, of vindicating themselves for what they did to him. And this is really uh, the unfolding. Some people say, well, it looks like Joseph is taking vengeance. He's torturing them, throwing Shimon in prison, setting them up with money. Now, how are they going to go back with Benjamin when there's this uh, someone subterfuge in the court that's trying to frame them, making it all the more difficult to return? And things just start looking worse and worse. And then they come back to Jacob. And when they get back to Jacob, uh, it turns bad as well. Because Jacob, they explain to him what happened. We have to bring Benjamin down. And of course, remember, Benjamin is the only other son of Rachel, his favorite wife. So here we have the fault lines appearing again between the brothers. And how is it going to resolve? So Jacob says, no, I will not let you bring Benjamin down. Now, objectively, here's this crazy viceroy. Someone's framed them. Uh, it doesn't look good. He says, I've lost Joseph. I've lost Shimon. And now you're going to take Benjamin away from me? And Ruvain steps up and he says, if I don't bring him back, you can kill my two sons, which, of course, was way out of line 
but you see that the brother's moral compass is way off because of perhaps their guilt over what they did to Joseph. Yehuda then says, you will not see my face without Benjamin coming back. These guarantees do not placate Jacob, and he refuses, and they sit tight. And eventually, the Torah tells us the food runs out, and they have to go back. And Jacob says, go get food. And they said, Dad, remember, we have to bring Benjamin. And Judah then steps up and gives a reasonable promise. He says, I am a guarantor. And if I don't bring him back, I'll have sinned against you all of the days, which the rabbis say means in this world and in the next world. So it's he's putting his revealing to his father the extent to which he sees the gravity of being the caretaker for his younger brother, Benjamin. Jacob says, take gifts, have a strategy, and they set out to return to Egypt. And when they arrive in Egypt, right away they come clean. They say, the money that was in our bags, that somehow it was there when we brought grain last time we were here, we want to return it to you. And Paris courtier seems to make nothing of it. Don't worry, come into the palace. They're treated more royally. They're given a special bank banquet. They even eat separately, which the rabbis say was the kosher food. And uh, the brothers are showered with gifts. Interestingly, with Benjamin receiving five times the gifts of the other brothers. Is this Joseph testing out, seeing, will the brothers be jealous of Benjamin? How will this play out? And so um, he sends them off with food, gives them what they need. But now again, Joseph plants a silver goblet in their bag. And as the brothers had left Egypt, he sends his policemen after them. They catch up. They say, who stole our master's cup? His silver goblet. And Judah says, anyone who, if the cup is found in whoever's bag, that person would deserves to die. And then they say, no, we wouldn't kill them. We would just enslave them. Once again, interestingly, like Jacob saying, uh, anyone who stole Lavan's idol should die. And uh, like um, in a similar way, He's making these, uh, they're making these blanket statements, which unfortunately uh, will prove to be fortuitous and tragic as well. So sure enough, the cup is found in whose bag? In Benjamin's bag. And here we're going to have the ultimate setup to see how the brothers react. So they all go back to Egypt with uh, Benjamin, and when they come to Joseph, he says, how could you deceive me in this way? And uh, by the way, this whole time, it says that the brothers obviously did not recognize Joseph. How could that be? Well, think about it. It's 19 years later. Joseph was 17. Now he's 36, 37, 20 years later. He's got a beard. He's speaking Egyptian. He's completely, and if you look at the ancient um, mosaics of the Egyptians, uh, their makeup, headdresses, um, he has transformed himself 
in a certain way. And yet the rabbis tell us, even though he was so acculturated in, in terms of being Egyptian, he always had the face of Jacob in front of him. And we see that he never really did forget his brothers because he was waiting for them. So here we have the setup. And Joseph says, um, Judah says, uh, I'm, don't find any excuses. We are wrong. We are guilty. We will all be your slaves. And Joseph then says, no, only the person who did the theft, he should be a slave. And with that, um, we end off the Parsha with the climactic scene to unfold in the beginning of next week's Parsha. And I'll just, in terms of our question of why Jacob was not informed by Joseph that he was alive, uh, I'll give you some hints uh, for part two. Is it because uh, Joseph has moved on, so to speak, uh, and wants to forget the old life that he had, like he named Menashe? Uh, now I have moved on from the, those painful memories. Is it to get back at the brothers? Does it have something to do with fulfilling the dreams, which the Torah says he remembered the dreams and he accused the brothers of being spies? Or is there something deeper? Is it that Joseph has to lead the brothers step by step through, and we'll go through what those steps are, through a process of self-awareness and a process of uh, response, taking responsibility for what they've done uh, and this is uh, a complicated process that he has to bring them through. So stay tuned for part two. Have a good evening, everyone. And uh, the end of Parshat Miketz.